Well, good morning, Calvary Church. Um, it's such a joy to be able to come into this place and worship together. Uh, a little bit about myself. Uh, my beautiful wife, Megan, is somewhere in this room. I can't find her, but um, she is here. She is a stay-at-home mom. She's also a photographer, uh, and she is an amazing uh, help to me. She is, uh, is somebody that I'll share a little bit about our story uh, later, but um, it's amazing that we ended up together. I'll say that much. Um, it's amazing that she uh, kind of looked over my faults and kind of looked past that to, to get there. But uh, we also have three beautiful children. Uh, I have a son, Jude, who's eight, a uh, daughter, Lily, who's seven, and a daughter, Brooke, who's four. Uh, and then we're actually in the process of adopting our fourth child right now, uh, if uh, our home study would hurry up and get finished. So, um, but we are so thankful that we're here at Calvary Church. Um, as Tom said, we came down about, or came up about six months ago. Um, nobody told me that there was winter up here, though. Um, <laughs> Yes, it was July, it was a trick, uh, but uh, actually yesterday, I had the pleasure of going snowmobiling up north. Um, so a few guys in the, in the congregation brought me snowmobiling and I'm alive, thankfully. Um, and we are absolutely loving it here. We feel so at home here at Calvary. Uh, the people here have loved us so well and come around us like a family. Uh, and so I just wanna thank you uh, personally that it's been our joy to be able to serve this family together. Um, and as we get into God's word today, we have the opportunity, I'm, I'm continuing on in our Titus series, and we're actually going to be continuing on, as you see above, uh, today we're talking about the Messiah. As, as the first week we talked about creation, Pastor Jim talked about creation, then he talked about uh, election, and then last week was redemption. And really what we're trying to do is look at salvation history through the lens of sound doctrine. And we find this idea of sound doctrine in Titus chapter two, because we're in this series uh, looking at Titus and kind of jumping off from the topics to see where we see it other places in the word. And so today I have the immense opportunity to talk about the Messiah. Uh, thankfully, I got the Messiah because man, I love preaching Jesus, right? And so it's just an opportunity to uh, just, just proclaim the fame of Jesus Christ here in this place. And what better joy than to preach Jesus. So would you bow your head with me as we pray and as we ready our hearts to hear from God. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. We, we really could not ask for anything better, for anything more. And so this morning, my prayer is that your word would just sink deep into our hearts, that it would affect change to the very core of who we are, that it would rock the foundations of everything that we know. Because God, when you reveal yourself, people move. When you show yourself, lives are changed. When we see truly who you are, God, everything is different. And so Father, my prayer this morning is that would you would make less of me and make more of yourself in this place and that you would reveal to us the truth of who you are. We pray this in your name, amen. So this morning, um, it's, it's an amazing just privilege to be able to open God's word with you. Uh, it's, it's something that I don't take for granted. Um, and I, I was thinking through this, this lesson and this teaching this morning, and, 
And one of the things that came to mind when I was uh, given the opportunity to preach Messiah, I thought about this. I don't really think about Messiah very often. I don't know about you guys, but I think, of, I think of Jesus, I think of God, I think of, you know, when I think of the Bible, I think of Paul and Peter and a lot of different things, but I don't really think in light of Messiah very often. And maybe that's because I didn't grow up in kind of first century Israel. Um, and so I'm not really thinking through this idea that I'm looking forward to a Messiah, but ultimately that's what Israel was all about. They were all about looking forward to the Messiah because ever since the covenant was made with David, back in 2 Samuel chapter seven, the prophet Nathan comes to David and he says, guess what? You're wanting to make a temple for Jesus, for, for God. You're wanting to make a temple because you know that you have a house made of cedar. And so you're in Jerusalem now, you fought your battles and you're saying, now Jesus, God, he needs a home. He's been living in this tent and he needs a home. And so I'm gonna build it for him. And the prophet Nathan comes to him and he says, you know, no, 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 hold up. God says that you're not the one who's gonna build this, this temple. There's gonna be, your son is actually gonna build this temple, but God is gonna make a covenant with you. He's gonna make a promise with you that your kingdom is gonna go on and last forever. David must be feeling kind of good at this point, right? Like, man, my, my kingdom is gonna go on forever? That's an amazing thing, right? Because ultimately he's only the second king and the first king, Saul, his kingdom was stripped from him. And it was then given to David. And David has given this promise, your kingdom is gonna go on forever. But I wanna ask you this question, how is it possible when man dies that there would be a forever kingdom? Who is this king that we're looking forward to? Who is this king that we're saying is gonna be this forever king? Just give me the church answer. Jesus, right? Man, you guys are good. All right. The, the church answer is going to work a lot today. I'm just going to let you know. All right. Jesus is the only possibility that there's going to be a forever king because Jesus is not going to die. Obviously, David doesn't understand the name of Jesus yet. He doesn't understand what's happening through this. But as we start to see throughout history, these people are looking forward to a savior. They're looking forward to the chosen one. They're looking forward to the Messiah. And so we see this laid out over time that actually 14 generations after David, we see the exile. Babylon comes in and takes over the nation of Israel because ultimately they've lost sight of who God is. They've forgotten how to follow God. And then there's another 14 generations that goes by because sometimes you wonder, well, how does Jesus, the, this reigning king, born in a stable out back, right? And put in a manger. It's because Israel was not following God closely. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And so ultimately we kind of see Jesus, the ultimate reigning forever king, kind of slip in the back door. And the only people who hear about it are some shepherds out in a field because an angel proclaims to them, hey, there's a baby that's being born. It's Jesus, the Messiah, go and see him. And a few, a few wise men see a star off in the east and say, I think we've, we've, we've put the puzzle pieces together. The Messiah has been born. And they go and they seek him out. Really? So as we see today, this idea of Messiah is not something that we talk about a lot but I wanna kind of help us to see how ultimately there's a full circle of redemption happening here. 
Last week we talked about the redeemer, right? We talked about redemption. And Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. All of salvation rests on the fact that Jesus, the redeemer, is who he says he is. That Jesus had the ability to go to the cross and to forgive all of our sins, right? That's the the point of redemption. And so when we think through Jesus as the redeemer, he's the final redemption. And now you and I have the joy to look forward to the second coming of the Messiah. Not a different Messiah, the same Messiah that came the first time, but he now is preparing a place in heaven with his father. And we actually have the opportunity to look forward to this Messiah coming again, full circle. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus isn't coming in the back door. He's not coming in quietly. His kingdom has now been established. The thing that was confusing to Israel, the thing that was confusing to his disciples was that Jesus wasn't here to build an earthly kingdom, right? He wasn't there to reestablish David's house, right? He wasn't gonna say, hey, you know what? Now that I'm here, I'm Jesus the Messiah. Let's build another kingdom. Let's take over Jerusalem. Let's gather back Israel. Jesus was like, yeah, I'm the forever king. I think a little bit bigger. I want the whole world, right? I, I'm not gonna just stop at Jerusalem. I'm not gonna just stop at Israel. I'm not just gonna stop there. I want everything because it's all mine already. The father has given me this authority. He created all of it. We saw that in the first series. God created everything. And then he elected and he says, I want these people. They are mine. And so he sends the redeemer who is then the Messiah. And so when he comes back, he's not coming back small. He's coming back in full force. This is salvation history. And so therefore this morning, I wanna take a look kind of through that window of salvation history. I wanna take a look at where, where do we see these things start to come about? Where do the puzzle pieces kind of start to fit in where his disciples get the picture? And they start to see a little bit more about who Jesus is. And some of the connections start to happen of, okay, this is is God revealing himself to us now. This isn't just a man who's gonna kind of help us where we are. This This is the forever kingdom that we were talking about. So if you'd open with me to Matthew chapter 16, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. And if you have a Bible, uh, there's gonna be a Bible in the seats in front of you. That's on page 797. Don't be ashamed. This is the Bible I usually use because I can't remember to bring mine. So in the Bible, page 797, we're gonna read from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. And we're gonna hear from God's word. And we're gonna answer a super important question. And honestly, it's one of the questions that I think is, is foundational to all Christians everywhere. If we can answer this one question, I think it sets us up for a lot of success. And it's this one question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Ultimately, we have to be able to answer this question. And I know from a really young age, I've been teaching my kids, who is Jesus? Right? We teach it very early on in the church, but there's a lot of people who have never heard the real explanation of who is Jesus. 
And so I want to look at the text here and answer this question. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? He asked his disciples this question. Who do do they say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, uh, or one of the prophets. Basically, they're like, they have no clue, right? Who do they say the son of man is? They don't know. They think he's kind of a good prophet. They're really just unsure. Then Jesus asked, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? I want you to stop there. Verse 15, but he asks, who do you say I am? And I want to take a second. I want to pause. And I, want, I, I know it's difficult because there's a lot of people in this room. But if you can imagine that you're the only person in this room and you're just having a conversation with Jesus, I want you to ask this question, who do I say that Jesus is? In your deepest heart of hearts, who do you say Jesus is? Who is it to me in my own personal relationship, in my own exploration of who God is, who is Jesus? Because I know that some of us wrestle with this question and some of us have been taught early on and and maybe we've kind of walked away from that answer over time. Maybe we thought we knew who Jesus was, but we've experienced a trial and we're like, man, I'm not really sure. But I think it's one of these most important questions that we could ever ask. Who do I really truly believe that Jesus is? And so if I can answer that question, or maybe if I can't, I look to God's word for the answer. And verse 16 says this, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. When Jesus asks his closest disciples, who do you say that I am? The response by Peter is you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not overcome it. And I wanna say to you today that this church is evidence that God is who he says he is because the gates of hell have not overcome the church of God. We are living proof that God is alive and well and that his church is flourishing. The gates of over hell will not stand against the one true God. And I love how Jesus says this here. You can search all you want. You can research, you can go deep. You can dive into the depths of all philosophy and wisdom, but flesh will not reveal to you the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. That comes from the father. When the father sparks an opening of our eyes, when we seek out God, And he sparks that opening of our eyes so that we can say, we can clearly sit here and say today, who is Jesus? Man, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
There is no one else beside you. There is no one who can touch your majesty. There is no other king. It is only you, God, who I serve. So this morning, my prayer, my hope is that in your heart of heart, you have answered this question with full conviction, the same way that Peter did. And so when I teach, I like to give a big idea. I, I, I like to give something that you can talk about at lunch. And it's this, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. I hope if you walk away with nothing else, you walk away with Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, because that's the truth that we need to understand today. That when we think about the Messiah who lived over 2000 years ago, who had been foreseen for 28 generations before that, that we today can know the answer to that question. Who is the Messiah? It's Jesus. He's the son of the living God. He is the reigning king. He is the foundation of this church. And so as we look at this and we answer this question, I can't help but think that this is the crux of salvation history, right? This is the cornerstone. When we look at creation, when we look at election, we look at redemption, we look at what's to come, it all hinges on the fact that Jesus is Messiah. Because if Jesus is not the true reigning king, then what have we put our hope in? If Jesus is not the Messiah, then where are we today? Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the son of God, Jesus being our salvation is where it all rests. So in light of that, I have to ask this next question. All right, if Jesus is the Messiah, son of the living God, what do I do with that? Right? What do I do with that as somebody who goes to work every day? What do I do with that as somebody who's fighting with my kids? What do I do with that as somebody who has to interact with, with people all around me who don't seem to think that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God? And I have three answers for us today that I believe can help us practically with that question. And the first is this, we worship Jesus. We worship Jesus because a life given to worship says that this life has purpose. This life has a direction. And there is nothing more valuable than to give our lives over to the full, just unashamed worship of Jesus Christ. When people see that, it changes the way that they look at us. We worship Jesus because he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. In light of who we know Jesus to be, it should incite worship in our hearts. It should draw us to worship within us, right? If we know that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, if we know that he is king and his kingdom is established in heaven, what else can we do but fall on our face and worship him? We see Isaiah do this, right? When God reveals himself and he sees just a picture of this, what does Isaiah do? He literally falls on his face and he says, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. The angel has to reach out with a coal and burn his lips to say, all right, I'm gonna cleanse you. I'm gonna purify you in this moment. There's a, it's a strange picture, but it's something that kind of looks us into this factor of like, we aren't worthy before the God who has chosen us. We aren't worthy to worship and praise him. 
But yet he says, I love that. I enjoy your worship and praise. Whenever you open yourself up to me and worship and praise in spirit and in truth, it brings me joy. And so our chief end is to worship him. Practically, this looks like singing songs of praise, meditation on scripture, the study of his word, prayer and conversation with God, fellowship and encouragement of his people, repentance and embracing grace, right? But he even says it in his word. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? It means everything, right? He's not saying whatever you do. Well, I mean, not that stuff, not that stuff. Well, I was just kidding over here. No, he says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So that means now in my workplace with that frustrating coworker, I have a responsibility to do whatever I do with a mind of worship for Jesus. So how I speak, how I interact, how I let my temper affect my relationship is is ultimately affected by my worship of Jesus. Because here's the thing, if Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, if he is my king, I don't get to take him out of the equation. I don't check him at the door and say, it's kind of ugly inside. You're not going to want to go in there, right? He is right there with me, affecting the way that I speak, affecting the way that I act, because everything I do is worship to God. We see this even poured out in Romans chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, I'm so thankful that we don't have to bring sheep and dove and things like that. This place would be a mess. There's, there's too many people, that's too many cows, right? We get to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. We get to be a people that are his possession. And so our lives get to be worship to God. That is good news. So here's the thing, a little bit about myself. I love like law and rules and I like checking boxes and things like that. And there's been times in my life that I'm like, man, it would have been so much easier to just be able to, you know, make a mistake, bring a sacrifice and be done with it, right? I'm so wrong about that. It's so much easier to be forgiven by God's grace. It is so much easier to be able to say, this isn't on me any longer. I get to ask for forgiveness and God joyfully takes that from me. That's why he went to the cross for us. So I have to say, man, whatever I do is worship, even in my business, yes. Even your business practices, even in my family, because you don't know my family. Yes, even in your family. Well, some of my friends, they, you know, yes, even with your friends. In everything that we do, we are responsible to live out a life of worship for God because Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. He is king. Number two is this. Number two is this. We hope in Jesus. So how do we live our lives in light of who God is and what he's called us to be? First of all, we worship Jesus. Second of all, we put our hope in Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
We can put our final hope in God and rest in the fact that his kingship is not able to be touched by the flesh. There is no one who is gonna take this kingdom from God. There is no president, no dictator, no ruler, no war that can strip Jesus of his power. And that should give us hope because we live in a world that seems to be crumbling at time. We live in a war, in a, in a, in a world that, that cannot agree with itself. We live in a place where it doesn't matter who the candidate is, not everybody's gonna vote for him. But there will be a day when Jesus returns and he reveals himself to us and every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. There will be no question of who is king. It will be evident to everybody that Jesus is king. And so we put our hope in Jesus alone. And I want us to understand this. When I mean hope, I don't mean a, man, I really hope he does. Right? Yeah, I hope I find $100 in the parking lot. It's not a cross your fingers kind of hope, right? It's a confident expectation, right? When we put our hope in Jesus, it's saying, man, my hope is with confident expectation, my hope is 100% sure. The transaction has already been completed, right? When I go to a car dealership and I sign the papers and I pay the money and I drive my car home, I don't sit at home and be like, man, I hope nobody shows up to take my car from me. No, it's already been done. The transaction is completed. It is now in my possession. In the same way, we hope with confidence knowing that when we put our hope in Jesus, we are taking the best possible scenario offered to us. There's no better option out there. It's not like, oh, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of the living God, or you can actually live this way. There is no better option. There is no better solution to the problem. Jesus is the final say so. And that's why when thousands of years ago, when Nathan spoke the covenant to David. He was being, he was speaking the prophetic word of God. Your kingdom is gonna last forever. Not because of you, David. Not because of your purity, David. Not because of your loyalty, David. Not because you're good looking. You screwed all of that up. It's because of God's grace for you. That's why he's building a covenant with you. That's why he's gonna enter into this covenant with you because you're not worthy of this covenant. But the one who's coming is worthy and he is able to fulfill this covenant. And so we look forward with confident hope. The problem is sometimes we put our hope in self. We put our hope in other things. When I was in college, my freshman year of college, I was taking uh, Old Testament theology as one of my courses. And we had this amazing new professor, Dr. Mooney. Everybody loved him, except he was extremely hard. Like the classes he offered were just really, really difficult. It felt like you were only studying for his course. And uh, I had been really doing well in his course, but it came to finals of the first semester. And um, I had to make a choice because there was a, there was a test coming up. And basically what we had to study was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 
And then also the book of the 12, the prophets. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, so on. And I basically made this choice. I, I knew all of this was gonna be on the final, but I said, you know what? I don't have time to study for all of this. That's a lot that's going on in there because really what he, had to, what he was gonna do was we had to me- memorize the theme of every chapter of each of these books. And so you're thinking Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it's 150 chapters, the book of the 12, you know, another 50 or so. And we had to memorize all of this. And so I basically said, I'm gonna put man's wisdom to this. I'm gonna pick one side or the other. I thought, well, there's 12 books over here, but there's a lot more chapters over here. Well, it's probably more important that I learn 12 books than a bunch of chapters. So I studied the 12 books. I had it backwards and forwards. And I go in and I take my final exam and I get my test and I flip through page one, flip through page two. And at the back of page three, there's five questions that I can answer. And I answer those questions real quick. And I flip back over and I think, I chose wrong. I completely chose wrong. I studied all of the book of the 12 and there was only five questions on all of those 12 books. And the whole rest of the final was on Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So I sheepishly, after like 10 minutes, you know, everybody's gonna be in there for an hour. After 10 minutes, I bring my test to the front. I lay it down and I quick turn around and I kind of like sneak. And he says, hey, Mark, Mark, Mark. I'm like, oh no. I turn around and I'm like, yeah. I'm whispering because I'm embarrassed. He's like, and he's speaking full voice. Mark, what's, what's going on here? I'm like, uh, yeah, I just, I don't got it. He's like, you left most of this blank. I'm like, Shh. <laughs> I know that, you know that, but everybody else doesn't need to know that, all right? And he's like, man, you don't wanna try to like muscle this out? I'm like, Muscle, there's nothing to muscle out. Like, I just don't know it. And so he basically looks at me and says, you know, I thought I was at the low point. He says, man, this is really disappointing. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna go now. And as I walk out, I sheepishly lower my head and exit the room uh, to take my failing grade on that final. Um, The funny part of it is later on that summer, uh, I met my wife for the first time and I had never seen her. We actually went to school together, but I had never seen her on campus. And the very first time I walked up, I was like, hi, my name is Mark. And she's like, oh, I know you. (laughs) And it wasn't like that kind of like, good, I know you, where you're like, oh, really? (laughs) It was that, uh uh-oh, how do you know me? And she's like, you're that guy in Dr. Mooney's class. You're that guy that like totally failed that test. And I was like, how do you know that? You weren't in that class with me. She's like, yeah, I was in a previous class and I was taking my final early and I saw you up there. That was so embarrassing. (laughs) So that's how I first met my wife. Um, But I tell you all of that to say, sometimes we put our hope in our own wisdom. And I'll be honest, sometimes it works out and sometimes it falls so completely flat. We put our hope in what we think is right, what we think is best, and it just destroys us. The only hope 
that is worth fully putting ourselves into is the hope of God. There is no other hope that is worth just completely pouring ourselves into because every time we put our hope in ourselves or we put our hope in somebody else, it just falls flat. I hear people all the time, man, I'm not going to that church. Those people, man, I'm like, oh, please don't base churches on people. We're all a bunch of screw ups. We're not there because we're good people. We're there because we need God. So you need to kind of ignore the people and you need to be focusing on Jesus because the people will let you down. Because when we put our hope in people, we're putting our hope in something that cannot uphold itself. But when we put our hope in Jesus, we're putting our hope in something that will never let us down. I think about the time that ultimately when, when Tom first came to me and we, we, we kind of got together I'll be honest, the first time we met, I was kind of like, yeah, you know, he, we, he took me out for breakfast and was like, hey, we have this position. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty well where I'm at. I, I don't really have a desire to leave. It's cold up there. Um, there's a lot of reasons. But as I started to pray and as Tom started to pray, God started opening up my heart and my eyes. And when, honestly, when we flew in uh, to Grand Rapids in April, I was praying, God, like, if this is the place you want us, just make it just abundantly clear, abundantly clear. We've lived in the Midwest before. We lived in Minneapolis. We've lived in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, we've been to cold places like that. And, and honestly, there were some of these times where we felt like, man, this, ugh, this dreary weather and this and that. And it was raining when we got off the plane. It was cold. And both my wife and I both just like really automatically felt like at ease. We felt a peace. We felt like, man, we, we really like it here. We, and, and honestly, there was a little bit of us that was like, we, we almost don't want to like it here, you know, because Florida's nice and this and that. But God gave us a complete peace. And when we came in an interview, we said, you know what? We just need to be completely ourselves. And if they don't like us, then they can turn us down. And we were just completely ourselves and God put us at peace. We weren't trying to put our hope in ourselves. Thankfully, we are just trying to put it over to God and say, God, whatever you want to do with this situation, do it. This isn't about us. This is about what you have for our lives. We want to answer your calling wherever you call us. You call us to China, you call us to Grand Rapids. We want to go, we want to be faithful. And so God has us here in this moment. And my prayer is that we would continue to be faithful with whatever he calls us to. Because my hope is not in me. My hope is in Jesus Christ. And number three is this. So we worship Jesus, we hope in Jesus. And the third is this, we proclaim Jesus. And why do I say this? We proclaim Jesus because he's this, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. He's the only one worthy of proclamation. So it is our job to proclaim Jesus. You shouldn't need a more convincing argument that Jesus is worthy of being proclaimed. Jesus is the Messiah, the the one true God. And so as we are here today, maybe some of us are wrestling with this fact. I don't know if I understand who Jesus is. I don't know if I know Jesus. I don't know if, I'm not really sure of what this looks like in my life. We have opportunities to respond to Jesus because of the proclamation of Jesus. Romans chapter 10, what does it say? How are they to hear 
Or how are they to respond if they have not heard? And how are they to hear if nobody's gonna tell them? And how are they to tell them if they don't go? Well, let me give you this charge right here in this place. The people who are to go are all of you. There is, there is no just pastor of evangelism. There is Christian. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is your call to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. He has given you the ability to be witness to what he has done in your life and then to proclaim that to the people around you in your circle of influence. And your circle of influence are the places where you live, work, and play. Where I live, my neighborhood, it is my job, it is my opportunity to go and share Jesus. Where I live, where I work, in my workplace, it is my job to proclaim Jesus. I am the one to worship Jesus. I am the one who has Christ and needs to share it. And where I play, at my gym, in my hobbies, and the things that I do, the people I hang out with, it is my job to be a witness for Christ. What does Jesus say ultimately to Peter? He says, I'm gonna build my church on you, Peter. Why? Because you are a witness. And what does he say before he ascends into heaven? You are my witnesses. Now go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Be my witnesses. Be people of witness. Be people who are ready to take up the cause of Jesus Christ. Because if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, and that he is the only hope for this world, then it is our job to proclaim him. So as we close, I wanna leave you with this. I wanna leave this with this thought. Jesus says this of himself. In John 14, six, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. That was Jesus proclaiming himself as Messiah. That was Jesus proclaiming himself as, this is the only way. And we see Peter in this text say, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So Peter, who had been walking with him, who had seen the miracles, who had seen people raised to life with his own eyes, he had been with him for about two and a half years at this point. He says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Where else would I go? So the question I pose is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Because we have the opportunity to respond with the same zeal and the same fervor that Peter does. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. I want to be a people who proclaim you. I want to be somebody who who worships you. I want to be somebody who puts my full hope in you because there's no other name under heaven or earth that is worth putting my full hope in. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.